again, we're sort of talking about, kind of take a little detour here, about uh, what the end will look like, the things that we should uh, maybe be able to identify and see and, uh, as the end gets near. And this is the Torah portion of Aeshev, which is, and he dwelt. And this, I think, is the fourth or fifth one that starts with a V, so in case you haven't figured it out, V is the Hebrew for and. So the last half dozen or so have been and, he dwelt, and something. So they all start with a V. Um, and those are the Torah portions. The Matthew one is all about the birth of Yeshua, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so anyway, it starts with this, this. Obviously, these last Torah portions have been about uh, Jacob and Joseph and all that. And uh, so this one starts with Jacob. Uh, I guess I didn't get the verse. Saying he's he's uh, ready to retire. He's sort of he. It says he's uh, settled in uh, Canaan. And this word, it's yeshab, it's to sit down. And it's, the, the idea might be as you're reading it that, um, you know, he's, he's already brought you the 12 sons. So we've got the 12, 12 sons. Um, he's dealt with Esau. He's dealt with Levon. Rachel and Leah are both dead. He's, you know, he's lived his life and done, I think maybe he's thinking he's done what the Lord had him to do. And it says he's ready to sit down in the land that was promised to him. And I guess, uh, you know, looking around this room, I know I am ready to sit down and quit working. And, you know, I mean, I would love to, do something different to retire or whatever and until, I guess, Trump isn't president anymore and makes it so easy to make money that I'll have to keep working. But we all sort of think that. We look towards some sort of, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to move to the beach? Are you going to hike? Are you going to train dogs? Or, you know, whatever it is that you're looking forward to doing. And... Uh, Jacob is about to find out that God wasn't done yet. He had done all of these things, and he, I think, thought that he was done. He'd done everything God asked him to do, but we're going to find out that's not quite the case. He's got one more big deal he has to do. And this, the thing that we'll find out, and we've talked about this before, is you know, light comes out of darkness. Right, And in order for the light to come out of the darkness, that requires darkness. And if you remember from Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, he created the, the universe, tohu v'bohu. He created it in chaos and um, destruction. And it was out of that that he brought everything that we see and everything that we know. And we tend, or at least I tend to think that, well, if he's creating it all, why didn't he just create it all rainbows and unicorns and butterflies? And he could have, but he didn't. And so this, uh, this last thing with Jacob and the family is, is <clears throat> going to be another picture of this. You know, that the light has to go where the darkness is. So as we consider our lives and our, you know, what are we going to do next? 
um, God might have something else for you <laughs> that's maybe not on your, your agenda or your list of things to do. But he typically, you know, he gives each person a desire to know or do or whatever it is we, we want to do or, you know, we're moved to do or think or, or see. Those are the things he tends to weave into what he wants us to do. So it's not like he's uh, sending somebody that ha hates hot spicy foods to uh, wherever they have hot spicy foods, India or Mexico or whatever. He has something for each of us and it's different. But often uh, we have to go where the darkness is. And as we consider Jacob and all, you know, his, his whole life looking back on, I think he's 108 now when this starts and his dad is 168, Isaac, and they're both still alive. But he's, you know, he's 108. He's an old man, right? He's, he's done. So the next thing that God calls him to do just seems illogical because the Lord through Abraham and, and you know, from almost from the beginning has been promising this land to their seed, right? To Abraham's and uh, uh, certainly to Jacob and to Isaac and this land of Canaan was going to be where they lived. And that's why Jacob was living there. So this, this next calling of God is for him to leave Canaan and to go into exile in Egypt. And that almost seems illogical and counterproductive. But if you think it through, with everything Jacob knows and everything Isaac knows, and everything Abraham knew, they wouldn't have done that. He, he would have fought that tooth and nail. He wouldn't have gone to Egypt because God was calling him and his family and everybody to Canaan. But God had a different plan. And so he needed to move him down there for God's own purposes. So this Torah portion is uh, essentially... The, okay, this one and the next one is essentially the account of how that happens. And if, if we started in Genesis 37, it starts in 37, verse 2. It says, and these are the generations of Jacob. And it doesn't really talk about the generations of Jacob, but it talks about Joseph. So that right there should tell you what the, what the whole deal is. So it says, and these are the generations of Jacob. And then all we're going to hear about really is Joseph. It says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And that's typically the way we read it in English. But the word feeding in Hebrew is this word ra'ah, which means all sorts of things. But one of the things it means is to rule. So you might read that as Joseph being 17 years old supervised his brothers as they fed the flock, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And then it says, and Joseph brought unto his father an evil report. And evil is the same word ra'ah again. It's just pronounced a little different, which I can't do. And it can mean to slander, or it could just mean that the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah weren't doing a good job. And he was reporting back to his father. So verse three says, and now Joseph, I'm sorry, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And I should just add that um, 
if Joseph is 17, that would have made Benjamin a toddler. So he's not, he's not, he doesn't even figure in here. We don't get to Benjamin until the end of the next Torah portion. So as far as Jacob is thinking, or Israel is thinking, um, his son Joseph is the son of his old age, and he seems to have a special affection for Joseph. And he made him this, as we read it in English, this coat of many colors. And you've seen countless movies and, you know, Joseph's Technicolor dream coat and, you know, and all that stuff. Um, and it may be that it was a coat of many colors, but the word is typically used as a coat with sleeves. Because if you were somebody, you'd have a coat with sleeves. Everybody else just sort of had a poncho, you know, it's a sheet with a hole cut in the middle of it, you put your head through it, and that's the way it is. But if you can afford it, you can have one made that actually has sleeves that you, you know, you wear like we would wear. So apparently Joseph was the one that had either a coat of many colors, which is very unusual, or a coat with sleeves, um, or something odd. But did you catch it when I read the verse? It says Israel loved Joseph, not Jacob. So as you're reading that, you remember Jacob is the guy and Israel is sort of a spiritual idea. You know, every time you see Israel, you have to equate it with something um, spiritual or something God's doing or there's, there's a, a different understanding of the name. When Jacob's doing it, it could go either way. He's just a guy, you know, it could be good or bad. But when Israel's doing it, God's got something going on. So it says Israel loved Joseph. So, you know, the question would be, did Joseph exhibit some sort of trait that Israel recognized? So he was spiritually superior, perhaps, to his brothers. Maybe he was, you know, we've all known people like that, that you just know they know the Lord. They're just, they conduct themselves and they live that way. And um, so perhaps Israel detected that in his son Joseph. And it, if you remember, Jacob and Israel were twins, right? But God picked Jacob, not, I'm sorry, Jacob and Esau were twins. And God picked Jacob. So he has some experience with this uh, being spiritually different concept because he lived his life with his brother who did not exhibit those ideals and those characteristics. So the Lord selected him rather than his brother as the firstborn. So it's, it's hard to say, you know, how it is that uh, Jacob came to care more for his son Joseph than the others. And it could be he was just the son of his old age, you know, and I, I don't know. But this coat of many colors is interesting. You know, it could be the sleeves. Um, it could be... Uh, the colors. There's a verse in Second Samuel where, it's, where it says the daughters of the king wore clothes of many colors, and that identified them as being the daughters of the king because they had the wherewithal to do that because it was not cheap. But the word translated as multicolored is the word pas. It's p-s, pa, uh, a pay and a samic, and it actually means to palm or disappear. And it's kind of interesting because if if you've been here. 
when we talked about the hidden ones and the concealed stuff and all that, there's this undercurrent through most of the Tanakh about these things that the Lord conceals. These things are these people, often it's people, like Hadassah or uh, Esther, as we call her. There's a number of people that the Lord puts in a place or a position because he's going to use them later. And they're hidden. Nobody knows who they are. And often they don't even know who they are. But the Lord has placed them somewhere for his purposes. And it's just interesting that the word translated as multicolored may be totally off the beam because the word actually means hidden. And that's exactly who Joseph is. He is hidden by the Lord. He will be. He, it's like when you have a baby. Most of you know about this. The baby has to be in the right spot. When the time comes, they have to be, you know, head down in the right spot. And if not, there's all kinds of problems. So for nine months, this baby is, you know, twisting around and doing what it's doing. And then when the time comes, whatever happens, happens. And the baby twists around. He's in the right position to do what he's supposed to do. Be born, right? And that's sort of the same idea of these hidden is you don't know how or why or, you know, you can't even conceive of the circumstances through which this person will be in exactly the right position to do what the Lord wants him to do. And almost, well, probably every time, but I'll say almost every time you see one of these hidden or concealed people or events, it is for one purpose, to save all of Israel. So it's just interesting that this word translated as multicolored may be completely off the beam, and it may just be saying he's the hidden one. Because we know, I mean, certainly from where we sit, we know he is. But as we read through the scripture, we will find that all these events that happen are for this one purpose to get this guy with this skill set in that spot to do exactly what the Lord wants. And again, it's always to save all of Israel. So he had to get Jacob to the spot where he couldn't retire anymore. He had to go someplace he would never think of going. Had to get Joseph in the place that he could do what the Lord wanted him to do. And all of this is all about that. So as, we're, as we consider that uh, these Torah portions and these events early in the Tanakh are describing things at the end, we have to realistically look at some of those things and sort of apply them to our lives. And if and I don't you know and I don't know that you can apply all this or that when I apply it I I'm anywhere near right, but as I think about Joseph being hidden, you know none of us live in the promised land, right? And we all think we're and hopefully are following the Lord, but in some sense we're hidden because we're we're not in the promised land, and even to the extent that if uh, you know, you're here, you're thinking things or considering things that maybe you're not going to hear from most churches most of the time. So in some sense, we're, we're hidden from the things, let's say it this way, from the things of the Lord, right? There's a, there's a whole church out there and there's one or 2% of the people right now that are um, not necessarily 
They're hidden. They're, they're in spot, and I have said this many times, they're in spot where when something happens, when the end happens, and whatever happens is going to happen, there are going to be people there who have been hidden that will be of use, just like Joseph was, just like Esther was. Just, you know, there, there are many people like that in Scripture. And I just wonder if that's maybe not people like us. So as, as you read the story, and you guys all know the story, so I'll go through it too much, but Joseph has some dreams, right? And the first dream is the, he's got the sheaves and his sheaf raises up and all the, all the other brother's sheaves bow down and they hated him to begin with. So this did not improve that relationship. And then he comes back and says, oh, and I had another dream. And guess what? This time even mom and dad are going to bow down to me. So this pretty much sealed the deal that the brothers, and even the dad, even Jacob was a little, you know, wiggy about this stuff. But it's, it's an interesting, and I can't help but think this, Joseph was young and immature, perhaps. And he was, he loved the Lord, and the Lord was talking to him, and I mean, what a great spot to be in, right? But when we were young Christians, and we would tell anybody anything, and I figured everybody really wanted to know this stuff, and and we would often um, not be well received by our family or our friends or, you know, whatever. And I, I, I think he just needed to mature because the Lord gave him these things. And I wonder, and you know, the Bible doesn't tell you one way or the other. So this is just my speculation. But I wonder if perhaps he shouldn't have kept that to himself because he was not doing himself any favors by telling these people that, but I know exactly what he thought. He just assumed they would really want to know. And that's, I've made that mistake a thousand times, especially with this Hebrew stuff. You know, I find stuff that's so interesting and I will tell people and for a while they're interested. And then I get to that threshold. I still don't know where it is when all of a sudden I'm the enemy instead of the friend. The things that I'm saying are, destructive and they're divisive and like so often I would be better off not saying anything or not saying much and I've encouraged some of you the same way you know just be cautious of what you learn because people aren't going to be receptive to it because that time has not come when, when that time comes those people and ideas and things that are concealed and hidden will be useful Right now, not so much. So you have to be cautious about it. Um, Jacob and Mary and I think Elizabeth and perhaps someone else were told things in advance by an angel or the spirit or the Lord or something. And it says in scripture, it says in this verse actually, that Jacob, after he rebuked his son by saying, are you telling me your mother and I are going to bow down to you? But then it says, but he pondered these things in his heart. Because I think he knew. He knew there was something about this child, that this was a child that the Lord was going to use. And perhaps, just like we saw last night or the night before when Iran fired these missiles into nowhere, just to save face, perhaps his response about, you think your mother and I are going to bow down to you, was that same sort of face-saving. But I think he knew in his heart 
what the deal was. And he knew this was the child that the Lord was going to use. And obviously had no idea how he was going to use him or what he was going to do. And that is what plays out here as, as we go. So as you're, uh, you know, considering the rest of the story, you guys know it, the, the other sons plotted against him and they, um, you know, they will plot to kill him or, or various things to get rid of him. Um, they weren't enthusiastic about the things that he had to say. And, and who would be, really? You know, the punk kid comes into the room and, oh, you guys are all going to bow down to me. Well, that's not, you know, the best message maybe to give. There's probably a different way you could give it, and I am uh, certainly guilty of that myself. I tend to get too excited and think people will be as interested in any of this as I am, and I will spout off a bunch of stuff, and I make them mad. They leave. They don't want to hear this. They call me all sorts of names. You know, and Nedra and I have had the... Uh, the gifting of being called by people in our own home and, you know, telling us how horrible we are and all that stuff. And, and it, you just have to wonder what's, what's the deal. Cause I know, or I feel in my heart that at the end, they're going to know this just like the sons did. And just like the father did. And there will become a time when it's not hidden anymore and everybody's going to like it. But until then, um, you know, <laughs> be cautious with it. So Joseph is a picture of uh, Yeshua. And he's also a picture of the sheep, which could be a picture of us. Uh, let me just read John 1, 11. You guys know this. He came unto his own and his own received him not. So as you're reading through this account, you get the, certainly at least in Hebrew, you get the idea that the brothers knew that these visions were from God. They knew these things were true. And yet, they decided they didn't have to play that game or go that way. And they get to the point where they, they will say, uh, you know, when they throw them in the, in the pit and all that stuff, they say, what will the dreamer's dreams do now? Or what will become of the dreamer's dreams now? as though they had some control over what God was doing. And it's just kind of a dangerous spot to be in, to be so convinced that your church or your theology or whatever it is, is right and everybody else's is wrong. You get to the point where when you admit God is doing something, but you're not willing to go along with it. You, you see if you can stop it because it's, you know, it's not the building fund we signed up for. Those aren't the things we were going to do. And it's... I think it's a, it's a caution for all of us to, no matter what church you go to or how long you've been there or whatever you think or believe, is see what you think the Lord actually says about it, not what I say about it or pastor says about it or a guy on TV or the radio guy or book you've read. What do you think the Lord really says about it? You know, seek him on it and he will tell you. And I suspect um, that there's a lot of people that are like the brothers and just would... <clears throat> We're going to try to stop this and see, see what those dreamer, the dreamer will dream now. So uh, Luke 19, 12 through 14 is another parable you're familiar with. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and to return. And he called his 10 servants and delivered to them 10 pounds 
And he said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. This is the Lord. This is a parable about the Lord. And the people who he came to don't want him ruling over them because it would change what they think they know or what they believe they know. And there are so many parables, so many, I could have had 30 of these verses. It's, it's crazy. And yet, I look at my life when I was a younger Christian and I did the same thing. I believed what I believed and if anybody didn't believe that, well, then it was my mission to get them to believe it because they're clearly wrong. And we all think that way, I think. And we would do well to maybe set that aside and see actually what the Lord's doing. Because again, Jacob had been told, his father had been told, his father's father had been told that this was the land where their seed would become as, as many as the sands in the sea and the stars in the sky. And now God is telling him, or will be telling him soon, to leave there and go to a pagan nation? I mean, that's crazy. Why would he believe that? And I suspect he wouldn't have believed that. He was forced to do it out of sheer desperation. And I think it would be better for each of us if it were possible to get to that spot where God doesn't have to force us. He will say something and will reasonably consider it and look into his word and find out, ah, maybe I didn't quite understand that right in the first place. Or maybe there's a picture bigger than I can see. So we're just going to trust the Lord on this and go. And it's easy to say, but it's hard to do, as I'm sure we all know. Okay, we see in this, in this Torah portion, everywhere Joseph went, he was in charge. He ruled. When he was 17, he was in the field, and he was ruling over his brothers who were uh, herding the sheep. When he's taken to Egypt and lands in Potiphar's house in some short order, we're not told how short, but apparently fairly quickly, he's ruling over Potiphar's house to the extent where Potiphar didn't even care what was going on in his house. He was just trying to do his job. He trusted Joseph to rule over his house. And then Joseph finds himself uh, in jail. Well, in jail, he quickly becomes the guy that rules over the jail to the point where the jailer didn't care what was going on because he knew Joseph was taking care of it. The jailer could worry about other stuff. And then he finds himself in the employ of the Pharaoh to the extent where the Pharaoh says, all that I have is yours with the exception of my Pharaohship. You run everything. How does that happen? And you think, oh, that's, that's gotta be God, right? I mean, he has to, and I, and I think about people um, that I've known and people perhaps that you've known, and there are always people like that in almost any field of endeavor that just seem like all the doors open. They don't have to do anything. They don't even have to know anything. In fact, some of these people are just idiots, and yet they're multi-billionaires. The door's always open for those people. And how is that? And it's so obvious that they didn't get there on their own abilities. Nobody's that smart. You know, how does this happen? 
And I suspect, and of course the corollary to that is, all of us are twice as smart as they are, and here we are, right? How does that work out? But these, you know, and I think about people like Billy Graham, and he had just, I mean, every door open for him. And he went through it, and he did exactly what the Lord had him to do to the best of his ability. And I'm certain that when he met with the Lord, it was, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then you look at somebody like Jeffrey Epstein or Bertie Madoff, both Jews, I might add, that had every door open to them, and they totally destroyed it. They took all of that stuff the Lord was given to them, and who knows what the Lord wanted Jeffrey Epstein to do. But he gave him every opportunity, and he took every opportunity to not use it in the good of the Lord. So how does that happen? Then there's the rest of us that, you know, we just, we do what we do and we try to do it right. And, you know, some doors open and some doors don't. And it's just, it's just life. That's just the way it is. And we try to be the best we can be. So as you look through the the 12 tribes, the 12 sons, you're going to see that whole spectrum, you know, and you have Joseph and every door open for him. Every place he went, they loved. I mean, he was in Egypt. The Egyptians hate the, the Hebrews. They won't eat with them. They won't shake their hand. They won't touch them. They won't even be in the same room with them. And if you remember, you know, in the next Torah portion, the story is he's the viceroy of Egypt, and the Egyptians won't eat with him. He has to eat by himself. His brothers eat in another room. The Egyptians eat in another room because they will not tolerate being with a Hebrew. So how is it possible that this Hebrew, every door opens to him everywhere he goes? Well, it's the Lord. And he did everything the Lord asked him to do. He kept in mind, I would assume, those visions that the Lord goes, those dreams, you know, my sheep will rise up and theirs will bow to me. Well, that hasn't happened yet, so it's going to happen. Well, that's a good way to look at it. We tend to to look at it, or at least I do, like, well, it's been five minutes. What's the deal? You know, and he's, he's now 20 some odd years he will be in prison. But he kept the, that vision that the Lord gave him. The sun and the moon and the stars were all about, and it wasn't about him. It was never about him. It was always about what the Lord wanted him to do. And then you look at some of the other brothers and uh, their lives did not, roll that way. They uh, took all the advantages that the Lord may have given. I mean, they were the 12 tribes. These people had every advantage. They should have been as good as Joseph, but none of them were. And it's interesting as we'll get through this in the next uh, couple of Torah portions, we see these people go from bad to best. And we see how this will... uh, figure into the end and and what it's going to look like at the end time. But right now, the brothers are not too into this whole deal. So, um, you know the story. Well, let me me do this. uh, Genesis 38.1. And it came to pass. Oh, that's not it. I'm sorry. That's the wrong one. Um, Okay, well, we won't do that right now then. So the the account is, you know, Joseph is thrown in the pit and sold and and 
winds up in Egypt and all that stuff. Um, all right, let's do this anyway. Genesis 38.1. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah are the Jews, right? That's where we get the name Jews. And Judah, the tribe of Judah, are the Jews. So you've got Joseph, who is the son of Jacob, Israel, and you've got Judah, who are the Jews. So all through scripture, you will read Israel and Judah, Israel and Judah, Judah and Israel, Judah and Israel. I mean, 68, 100, I don't even know how many times, a bunch of times you read those two together because those two comprise all of God's people. Judah comprises all of the Jews and Israel comprises all of the Gentiles, if you will, who have chosen to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So between Judah and Israel, all people who follow the God of Israel are included. So it's interesting that we see uh, it came to pass at that time. And it's interesting that phrase, it came to pass at that time, is often associated with uh, things at the end. And you'll get, if you, if you were to look that verse up and it came to pass at that time or whatever, if you look that up, you would find many, perhaps most of the times that verse is used. It's used certainly with whatever's going on there, but as a picture of at the end. These things are gonna happen at the end. So it's interesting, at least to me, that they used that here. It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brother. Judah is the other half of this story, right? Judah, Jews, Yarod, and if you remember Genesis 5 when we were, you know, talking about the names and what they meant, Yared means descend. Yarod means descend. So literally what the verse is saying is at that time, Judah descended. He let, you know, descending is like walking away from God. This is, you're not going in the right direction. And Joseph also descended, but he descended into Egypt. So as you compare the two lives, you'll see Joseph doing exactly what the Lord would have him to do. And you'd see Judah on the other side of that coin, just completely walking away from all this stuff. So it, there's this contrast between Judah and Joseph throughout these next two Torah portions. Judah does not resist the temptation that the world throws out there, and Joseph does. And you see that with the Potiphar's wife thing and all that. Um, and just as a little spoiler, next Torah portion, you'll see, and you probably already remember this, with uh, the, the brethren and Joseph and as the viceroy and getting all the grain and all that stuff, eventually Judah steps up and he does the honorable thing, does... He acts honorably in the face of um, some interesting circumstances. And it's that event that brings Joseph and Judah together, that brings Israel and Judah together. And I think that has some uh, pretty prophetic things that we'll talk about next week. Although it, it does happen when? <clears throat> On the third day, of course. It always is. Um, but anyway, that'll be next week. So Joseph is the picture of Yeshua, or Jesus, if you're Greek. And if you remember, the angel told Mary on Christmas Day, which was the day of his conception at his birth, in Luke 1, and he will reign over Jacob's, or Israel's, descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. And he's, of course, talking about Yeshua. 
because he's talking to Mary on the day of her conception about this child and relating to this child that he will reign over Jacob's descendants and his kingdom will never end. So we're pretty clear on who that is. Uh, let me just read Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. You all know who the church of Philadelphia is, right? Like sort of us? The brotherly love that, you know, okay. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that opens and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, and behold, I have set before thee an open door that no man can shut it. For you have little strength, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, but are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept the word of my patience, and I will keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And behold, I will come quickly and hold fast that which you have, that no man may take your crown. And he that overcome, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say unto the churches. So this is that same idea of, um, I think it's the same idea, that God gives us information, he gives us abilities and desires and uh, things. What, what do we, bless you, what do we do with them? You know, and, and none of us are going to be Billy Graham, but none of us are going to be whoever the current axe murderer is. You know, we're, we're all somewhere in between. But how do we deal with the things that the Lord gives us? And if we are the Church of Philadelphia, and if we do hold fast to his word, and if we keep his words of patience and all of the things he said, you know, if we keep the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments, is what he later says, then these things will happen. And these are, those people will come and worship at our feet. Not worship us, but worship our God. And that's exactly the story of Joseph. He had this vision that all of these other sheaves were going to bow down to him, that his brothers were going to bow down to him. Well, that's this description in the Church of Philadelphia, that he stood for the things that the Lord would have him do. And it, and I can't say with any authority that he didn't mind being cast into a pit and sold to the slaves and uh, sold to Potiphar and tossed in jail and all of that stuff. Certainly that was not fun, but he kept it in, in, in context. He knew the Lord had something for him. He didn't know exactly how it was going to work out, but he knew kind of what was going to work out. And he knew that he was there to save his family, to save all of Israel. And, you know, and you read the same thing in, in the book of Revelation at the end, and that's kind of where I, well, that's not the only place. That's one of the ideas that you think about, or I think about anyway, when I see this stuff in the Tanakh and, and apply it to the end. Because Paul says it, 
and Ezekiel says it, and Malachi says it, and Hosea says it, that those things we are going to go through again. So if we didn't learn them the first time, then we're going to be lost the second time. And I don't want to be lost if I can avoid it. When, when the time comes, I would prefer to have some handle on what I think is going on. And I believe um, with all my heart that the things that are described in the Tanakh, these events in these Torah portions that we've been reading, um, these are going to explain what we're going to see. Because we couldn't write this scenario, we couldn't write this play, and the things that happen are going to be so far out of context, we are going to tend to say, oh, no, 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 that can't be right. God wouldn't do that. And yet, he's sending Jacob into exile in Egypt. Okay, so let's do this. Genesis 37, 15. And see if, if uh, I can't convince you that maybe that's, there's some truth to that. It says, And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here I am. Okay, so who said this? Israel, not Jacob. So you should know that whatever's about to happen is uh, not something we would do on our own. It's probably some spiritual deal. So let's just recap what's happening here. The father sends the son to find the lost brethren who hate the son and will try to kill him. And without hesitation, he says, I'll go. Okay, to me, that sounds a lot like the New Testament. And if you read on, it says that uh, Jacob or Israel sent his son, Joseph, to find the lost sheep, the lost brethren, from the vale of Hebron. So this is Machpelah. This is where the graves are. So he didn't do this at home. He took his son to this place where he would eventually be buried, I guess. Certainly Isaac would be buried there. And it's from there that he launched this endeavor where the son sends the father to find the lost sheep that hate him and will try to kill him. And the son goes, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Interesting. So again, it's Israel, not Jacob doing this. So you remember the story, Joseph is looking for the, the brethren and the flock in Shechem because that's where he thought they would be and they weren't in Shechem, which is interesting on its own, just as a side note. If you remember in the last Torah portion, Shechem is the place where Simeon and Levi killed all the men. Why would they go there? You wouldn't think that would be the safest place for them. But anyway, that's where they're supposed to go. So he's, Joseph's walking, a 17-year-old kid's walking around the desert looking for the brethren and the sheep. Did you see the picture? Did we do the picture? Okay. Uh, it doesn't matter. It was just an interesting picture. And he can't find them because they're not in Shechem anymore. So this, this guy, that's a lot of sheep. So, that's kind of how it is. Hopefully Joseph would get up on, and I assume he would, get up on the highest mountain and look and see if he could find the sheep. But he couldn't find them. They were nowhere to be found. So he's, where, where'd he go? What do you do? It's not like you can call him, right? So he takes off and he's walking down one of these fields in one of these valleys. 
And he runs into some guy, just some guy. And the guy says, well, what are you looking for? And he says, well, I'm looking for my brethren and the flocks. And the guy says, oh, I heard him say they, they're going to Dothan. Well, who is this guy? I, you know, I would have guessed he's an angel, right? Because he didn't ask any questions. Like, what brethren? What flocks? You know, give me some, what do they look like? What's the deal? He just said, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard him talking. They're going to Dothan. Well, how would he have heard? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, this, this is, it has to be supernatural. Okay, so Dothan is from uh, a word that's a D DT. It's, uh, it means decree. So as you, as you think all this through and put all the words together, it's almost as though the Lord has decreed that Joseph go to find the lost sheep and the lost brethren. And as a result of finding them, he's going to find himself in a cistern, sold to some slaves, almost killed, coat ripped off, dad thinks he's dead, off to Egypt, become a slave, in a jail, you know, whatever. It's decreed. It's decided. It's this, none of this is an accident. This is Israel. This is spiritual. God already knew this was, he, he had planned it. Now, I don't know if he planned every individual step of the way or if he just used the sin in man's heart. I suspect that's the case. But none of this was a surprise to the Lord. It had to happen. It was decreed. Joseph had to be in Egypt and the doors had to open for him and he had to become the viceroy because the Lord had a plan. He was going to get Jacob against all logic to move his entire family to a pagan land so that they could multiply greatly. And when they get to be two or three million, he's going to put them in bondage, just like Abraham was told. His seed would be in bondage so that he could bring them out of bondage back into the promised land which seems like a long way around the barn because he already had him in the promised land. But there's a message there. You know, it's the message of Passover. It's the message of bringing the light out of the dark. These things have to happen. And you read this stuff, or I don't know. I mean, you guys are probably a lot smarter than me. I read this stuff, especially as a young Christian, and I just, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is a great historical story. And everybody will say, oh, it's probably not true. It's, you know, whatever. It's just, don't worry about it. Read the New Testament. There's nothing important here. <clears throat> but it's the very foundation of everything we believe. It's, it's the proof that everything we believe in the New Testament is true. That he has to bring the light out of the darkness. That he has to have Joseph go into this place where he's a prisoner for 22 <clears throat> years, which, by the way, Jacob was all he, he was separated from his family for 22 years. Interesting. I don't know what it matters, but he had to do all this. All this was decreed. Dothan. That's why they went to Dothan, because it's the word decree. It had to happen. The Lord was doing it. So, okay. Ezekiel 34, 11. For thus saith the Lord God, Lord God, behold, I, even I, will search my sheep and seek them out because this is exactly what the picture is. He's the father is sending the son to find the lost sheep. And you can go through Luke and, you know, all these, leave the 90 and nine and get the one and the importance of the sheep and you find one sheep and everybody rejoices. And, you know, the, 
these are not coincidences. This, they're not just there, you know, to make, make everybody feel good and be happy. This is the story. I mean, he's doing this on purpose and he's sending you a message. Okay, so Joseph is coming down, finds them in Dothan, and they say, here comes this dreamer. You know, and they already know the Lord gave him these dreams. They throw him in the pit. What will become of his dreams now? As though we have the option of changing what the Lord would do. I mean, it's crazy to think about that. And yet that's, and I think about this stuff, you know, I read this and go, what kind of moron would do that? He, they knew God would, well, like this moron would do it. Or I suspect, any of us morons, we believe what we want to believe, and when confronted with what the Lord says, sometimes we go, ah, no thanks. I don't think so. We're going to do it my way. Because you know what? It's really good. Everybody will love me. You know, let's just, let's, let's, let's embrace everybody. It'll be great, won't it? We don't have, have to have any discernment. We just, it's, it's awesome. You know, and I've, we should, I'm sure we have Sid, the pastor of the Methodist Church, on our prayer list. And he's a great guy. He's a pastor of the Methodist Church. Okay, well, that's, you know, <laughs> the Methodists are in the midst of right now of dividing. So most Methodist churches in this country are going to allow gay pastors and do gay weddings and all that stuff. And Sid, unfortunately, has uh, phase four or whatever it is, lung cancer. Stage four. So uh, Sid is going to go home and see the Lord pretty soon. So they're looking for a new pastor. And of course, it's a denominational church. So there's a committee to find the pastor, which I guess I shouldn't laugh about. But in the committee, apparently the lead candidate for the committee is a woman. But at least as far as I know, she's not gay. So I guess that's something. And all of that seems fine, right? I mean, you can rationalize any of that stuff, except the Lord says, no, we don't, we don't marry gay people. We don't allow women pastors. We don't have gays being pastors. But we tend to think, and I'm just singling them out so we can pray for Sid and all that whole deal. But, and it could be any church. You know, there are so many churches. I mean, every church does this. They say, no, nah, we'll just do what we want to do and expect the Lord to get on board with it. You know, just recently, every church you go to has a Christmas tree in it, right? We'll read Jeremiah. It's, it, defines, it defines a pagan as the person who will go out into the wilderness, cut down an evergreen, bring it in, nail it to its floor, and decorate it with silver and gold. All right. So every church should have a Christmas tree, right? It's like we do what we want to do. We don't do what the Lord says. So when I look at these guys, I, I initially think, man, those guys are really out there. And then I realize no more than any of us, we all do the same thing. We kind of do what we want to do. We believe what we want to believe and try to, you know, mesh it into what the Lord says. So, okay. So anyway, Joseph is there. The, the people grab him, rip off his coat, throw him in a pit, try and decide what to do with him. And Reuben steps up, who is the firstborn, and says, no, 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 we don't want to kill him. Let's just, uh, let's just wait. So then they decide they're going to sit down and eat. They have a meal. Um, well, Reuben's not there at the meal. 
And then they see this Midianite caravan coming. Oh, great. Let's sell him to the Midianites. So Judah says, let's sell him to the Midianites. Then we don't have to kill him. So his blood's not on our hands. Plus, you know, he's Jewish. We'll get a few bucks out of the deal. And as you read it, it says the Midianites pulled him out of the cistern. And apparently the Midianites sold him to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So I'm not even sure the Jews got any money out of this, but either way. But Reuben tries to thwart this plot because he recognizes a couple things. One, he's the firstborn. And if something happens, it falls on him because the firstborn should be smart enough and able enough to control the situation and not let this happen. Well, it's, it's spiraling out of his control. But the interesting thing is Reuben lost his birthright to Joseph. So you would think that there would at least been a twinge of, hmm, well, I can get my birthright back if he's gone. But there never was. Reuben stood fast and he, he went back to pull him out of the, the cistern only to find he was gone and then rent his clothes because he was beside himself. He didn't know what had happened. So the, the brothers, it says, stripped off his, his coat of multicolors. And it's the same sort of word that is used for uh, the way Jesus was treated. His garments were ripped off and he was mistreated and, and it's sort of a violent thing. And as we get uh, next week, as we were talking to the brethren and they're, you know, they're talking amongst themselves and they say that all this has come upon us because we saw the distress of his soul and did nothing. So for 22 years, this apparently has been haunting them. And they were just waiting for the time when the other shoe would drop. They knew God was going to punish them. And this whole famine thing and going to Egypt and he made them go back and get Benjamin. And, you know, this whole thing they believed was because we we saw the distress of his soul and did nothing. So, um, and we'll get into that next week. But, uh, you know, Judah asserts his authority in a sense by saying, well, let's not kill him, let's sell him. Reuben is, is left the brothers and is trying to save him. But the other brothers are, um, they would have killed him. They hated him that much. And they knew it was from the Lord. Okay, so this, the account continues that the brethren got Joseph's coat of many colors or whatever you know however you want to read that covered it in goat's blood and it says sent it back to Jacob apparently they didn't take it they sent it and the note was please identify if this coat is your son's and of course uh, Jacob was able to identify it as his son's and his heart was broken and he would not be he would be brokenhearted for the next 22 years, thinking his son was dead. But it's interesting that the blood provided the evidence that Joseph was dead. And Joseph is a type of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus provided the evidence that he was dead. Yet neither one were. They were hidden. It's the, it's, it's the same sort of story. So Jacob sees the coat, is, and, and it says, 
certainly my son Joseph is is dead. He's been torn, torn, it says, and it's the word tafah, taraf, I'm sorry. Not that you care. And Hosea 6, 1 and 2 says, Come, let us return, which is the word shuv, unto the Lord, unto the Lord. He hath torn us to taraf, and he will heal us. He has smitten us and he will bind us. After two days he will revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. And it's always after two days, or on the third day. And it's this it's the same terms. It's this taraf. He has he has torn, but he will heal. And it's the same idea we see with Jacob and the code and Joseph and everybody thought he was dead, but he wasn't dead. He was hidden. God had him in a place where God needed him to be. And it's after two days he will revive us, and the third day he will raise us up. So when we talk about, well, we'll get to that next week. So Judah begins his descent. Um, well, we read that earlier. He's turned off to uh, Hiram the Adulamite, and he's about to lose two sons. So he's going to experience the same grief as his father. So he, he marries, or presumably marries a woman who presumably was a Canaanite because she was a woman of the land, but we're not certain. And he has three sons, and then he picks, um, he picks a wife for his oldest son, and her name is Tamar. And Tamar means uh, a date palm, a high and mighty. Date palm is apparently the tallest palm tree there is. It means high and lifted up. It means uh, uh, raised to great height. So Tamar is a good name, we would think. So he marries Tamar to his oldest son, Ur. And the Bible says simply, and Ur was wicked and the Lord slew him. Okay. So then he says, uh, Judah says to Ona, his middle son, take Tamar to wife, because that's what Jews do, right? When, when, when one brother dies without issue, the next brother takes her to wife to raise up seed in, her brother's, in his brother's name. And it's interesting that that's... Uh, the, you know, that's what they call a Leverite marriage, and it's explained, explained in the Torah how to do it and when you do it and why you do it and all that stuff. But remember, the Torah is not written yet. We're still in the book of Genesis. The Torah doesn't come until Deuteronomy. So it's telling you a couple of things. One is that the Torah, the laws of the Torah, were well known to the Jews long before they were written down. And it tells you that the other the countries surrounding it did not know those things. And we know that because of the book of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She had no clue about this whole Leverite marriage thing. It had to be explained to her so that Boaz could redeem Naomi through her. She didn't know about that. So this, this idea that the Jews already knew the Torah, even though it wasn't written down, is something we should... It's helpful to know that the patriarchs knew these things 
And I've always said that even from Adam, these guys already knew the whole story. They knew what was going to happen. Adam and Abraham and Moses and all these guys just seemed to know what the entire story was going to be. But it hadn't been written down yet. So uh, anyway, Ona is to do the uh, the Leverite marriage thing and raise up seed. And remember that the realities of doing that is you go into your brother's wife, she becomes pregnant, you're responsible for both of them until the son is old enough to be responsible for his mother, at which time you can cut him loose and he uh, represents the seed of the brother so the brother's name is not lost. There's no benefit to you to do this. There's a cost to do this because you don't get anything. This is a whole different family, but you're spending the time and money to raise the child, provide for the wife until the child is old enough. So it's a, it's a, it's a duty, they call it. It's, it's something that you should do, but it's not free of charge and there's no profit involved. So it says, and Ona spilled his seed rather than impregnating her, another one of these guys that's you know, good for all the good stuff, but doesn't want any of the responsibility part. And the Lord took exception to that and slew him. So now Judah's lost two sons. And he says to Tamar that if she just waits, go back to your father's house, live as a widow and tell my third son, Sheila, kind of a weird name for a boy, is old enough. And then you can have him. Okay, so she does. She goes back, and she's dressed as a widow in her father's house, and word comes to her. This is years later, but it's the next verse in Scripture. Word comes to her that um, Judah is taking his... This is after Judah's wife has died, by the way. Judah is taking his ships, sheep up to Timnah to be sheared. So she scurries out on the road to the way to Timnah and dresses as a harlot. His wife has died. And there's, you know, he says this is a great idea and he asks her what she wants and she says I want a goat he didn't have a goat all he had was sheep he says I'll send you a goat and she says well can you give me a pledge something so I make sure I get the goat and he says what would you like and she says I want your staff and your signet ring and your cord or your bracelets that would identify exactly who you are because your signet ring is what you would put in a clay and it was your you know it was yours so everybody would know whatever's got that signet on it belongs to you it's like a brand or a ups label or something so he agrees so he gives her this stuff does the deed goes on shears the sheep she changes out of her harlot stuff back into her widow stuff and goes home three months later um, judah gets word that tamar has played the harlot and is now pregnant and he says she should be burned. Well, that's not the punishment for uh, adultery, unless you're the daughter of the priest or the wife of the priest. Then you are to be burned. So from what he says, a lot of rabbis will believe that Tamar was actually the daughter of the priest Shem, uh, you know, the sort of big kahuna there. And that's why Judah didn't actually uh, uh, 
well, he certainly didn't get a, a Canaanite wife for his sons, and they think perhaps his wife wasn't Canaanite either now. But anyway, it's just sort of a sidelight. But he calls for her to be burned. That would be the punishment of a daughter or a wife of a priest who has committed adultery. So you know the story. She's, uh, she's brought out, and she doesn't argue. She doesn't complain. It's just on her way past. It's sort of, oh, by the way, by the man who these things belong, am I pregnant? And she says the exact words that they said to Jacob. Can you identify whose these are? Can you identify that this is your son's coat? Can you identify these things? And of course, Judah knew immediately that they were his. And his response is, she's more righteous than I. Because she had never displayed any sort of unrighteousness. We read the, the account of Tamar, and we just think that she's a whore, and she's a terrible person, and all this stuff. And when you actually stop and read it, she is the one from Great Heights. She is the tall palm tree. She was the one who was more righteous than Judah because he wouldn't do what he said he would do. It was her right to have a son from Judah or Judah's family. And she did it in the most uh, non-confrontational way that it could be done. So it's interesting that Tamar is... Uh, the mother of the Davidic line because she's pregnant and you, you'll read that there's twins in her womb Phares and Zerah I think are their names and Zerah sticks his hand out first and the midwife ties a red cord on it and he pulls it back in and then Phares pops out first but Zerah was the first because his hand came out and all that stuff so there's this interesting little Hebrew bit about Zerah is bright shiny it's equated with the sun where Phares is, is uh, I can't remember what it means now, uh, it's equated with the moon. And the moon waxes and wanes. Sometimes, like tonight, have you seen the moon? It's awesome. That's a big moon. But in two weeks, there won't be a moon. It waxes and wanes. So the Davidic line comes through Pharaohs, not through Zerah, not through the sun, but through the moon. And they say that's why the Davidic line waxes and wanes just like the moon. Sometimes it's bright, sometimes it's not. And I would suggest now we're in a, you know, we're in a darker phase, but that moon's gonna come up again and it's gonna be bright. And that's the same idea you get with Edom and Israel. You know, one, or uh, yeah, Edom and Israel, one can be strong and one can be weak. They cannot both be strong or both be weak at the same time. And you see all through history, one will be strong and one will be weak. And the rabbis consider all of Europe, which is us, to be of the Edom line, because we're, I mean, we actually are from the line of Edom. And so they think that as you see Europe strong, you see uh, Israel weak. And as you see Israel strong, mm -hmm. you'll see Europe weak. And if that's true, at the end, Israel will be strong. That means Europe has to be weak. And you kind of look at the way things are going. You know, I'm not saying that's... Uh, not true. It could very well be true. Uh, okay. So Tamar is not is not who we often read her to be. But through this, we see Judah is repaid uh, measure for measure for what he did to his father because he lost his sons and the same wording and all of that stuff. 
but we will see at the end that this works out amazingly well. So you see, uh, we see Joseph going into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's house is blessed. The jailer is blessed. All these people are blessed by having Joseph. Joseph is a picture of Jacob, Israel, us. So you can say that the world, in some sense, has been blessed by the Gentiles who follow the Lord. And I think, you know, you, you could certainly make a case uh, for that. But Joseph is, you know, he flees Potiphar's wife, flees the temptation, all that stuff. And it, he winds up in jail as a result. And it's an interesting idea that um, you have to suffer first and glory later. And Romans 8.17 says that. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him, then we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that's, um, you know, we should, we should keep that in mind. As, as I suspect, we're going to see things going downhill and it will not be as awesome as it's been. But that's okay. Because glory comes out of suffering. Light comes out of darkness. So we have to expect uh, that these things will, will operate that way because that's what the Bible is telling us. And it's, it's interesting, too, if you, if you read through this about he goes to, you know, goes to Potiphar's house, gets cast in jail. The jailer embraces him. He runs the jail. Then the cup guy and the food guy get thrown in jail. There's, he's assigned to minister to these two specifically. And there's the whole dream thing. And the dream thing has got a bunch of three-day, you know, both dreams were three days. Uh, they ask for interpretation. Joseph says, well, only God can interpret it. So he interprets the cupbearer, I think, first. And it's good. So then the uh, baker says, okay, interpret mine, and it's bad. So you've got this one guy that lives and is restored and one guy that's hung on a tree. And it's uh, after three days, and he's in jail for two years, and you make this case that it's exactly what you see on the cross. You see Jesus in the middle. One is saved. One is not. After three days, they're together in paradise. Uh, and then it's Joseph is in jail for two years, two, or say 2,000 years for us. The timing's the same. And then Hosea says at the end of those two days, two years, 2,000 years, on the beginning of the third day, I suggest we're almost there, that's when we're going to be restored. So we would see the pendulum swing back and we'll go from darkness to light again. And I don't know, that was a, that's the quick and dirty. So I see a lot of that stuff as, as, as being pictures of, uh, you know, prophecy, what it's going to be like for us if we sort of take that stuff seriously.